What's up, Overcomers? Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming You podcast. I am your host, Josh Canuti. If you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button. It is simply the best way that you can help support this podcast. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit is a health and fitness juggernaut dedicated to delivering total human optimization to its vast customer base of athletes, thinkers, fitness gurus, and entrepreneurs. Through a wide array of products and supplements, Onnit combines cutting-edge science, earth-grown nutrients, and time-tested strategies to help people reach peak performance. Listen, they got everything. They have vitamins. They have supplements. They have some amazing training programs that you can do at home and follow along. They have this awesome vitamin D spray that I hear on the news that can help fight COVID and coronavirus during this time. So go to onnit.com slash O-C-Y and save up to 10% on all of your purchases. That's onnit.com slash O-C-Y. O-N-N-I-T dot com slash O-C-Y. My guest today is Dr. Judson Brewer, psychiatrist, neuroscientist. He is the Director of Research and Innovation at Browns University Mindfulness Center, and he is also the Associate Professor in the Behavioral and Social Sciences at Browns School of Public Health in Psychiatry and Browns Medical School. He is also the author of one of my favorite books or one of the best books when it comes to addiction or rewiring the mind titled The Craving Mind. And in this book, he talks about how to stop doing something you don't want to do and start doing something you have always wanted to do, whether that's quit smoking, quit an addiction, or start working out or stop negative thoughts or stop a bad behavior and start a good behavior. It encompasses anything and everything. And we talk about that on this podcast. And it's so cool because he's one of the few people that has a firm foothold in both the hard sciences as far as psychiatric and neuroscientists, literally how the mind works, and then also, quote-unquote, the soft sciences of mindfulness and meditation. And he brings them all together on this podcast, and we talk about how to finally rewire that brain. So if you've ever wanted to stop doing something and start doing the right thing, this is the podcast for you, and this is the guy to listen to. He's one of the smartest individuals that I think I've had on the podcast, such a joy And it was just a real honor to talk to him and have him come on this podcast and help us through this time and through the things that we want to stop doing and start doing. So please welcome this amazing Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Judd, I am so excited to talk to you today. You are a author, a psychiatrist, Behavioral Neuroscientist, Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University for Mindfulness Center, your research of brain and cognitive scientists at MIT. And I'm just so excited to talk to you because I think you're one of the few people out there right now that has a foothold in kind of hard science and then also in soft science as far as like mindfulness and meditation. So I'm really excited to talk to you. And I know you've been on a whirlwind circuit. So you've been talking to everybody and kind of helping us out through this coronavirus, this COVID-19, helping us out with anxiety and everything in between. So I just appreciate your time. Before I get to the questions and you giving yourself and your knowledge to our listeners, I wanted to once again, give my gratitude and thank you for everything that you're doing. But I also wanted to ask you personally, how are you doing as a psychiatrist, as somebody that's in this field, watching this on the front line? How are you personally doing? Are you doing okay? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, and I would say, yeah, I'm, I, I was 
surprisingly, I don't know if it's surprising, but what everything's surprising right now. Um, yeah, I was really inspired to to kind of lend a hand, not in a you know you don't want me innovating patients. I haven't done that in decades. But um, I've actually just started putting out like five-minute YouTube videos. I did that for like four and a half weeks uh, just as a way to kind of use the energy that I was noticing coming up um, and seeing all the suffering out there to, to pitch in. So that's actually been very therapeutic for me just to you know, do a five-minute video on why we get addicted to the news or to you know, worry or whatever. Uh, so, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing okay. Good. Good. Glad to hear. So I got to be honest, I have not to call myself Nostradamus or anything, but as soon as this whole thing really started to pop off and started to become a pandemic, I felt like I was in front of a bridge that was out and I'm waving my hands of this mental health. And um, I had this bus full of Americans or bus full of the world kind of flowing straight for this bridge that is out called uh, figuratively mm. mental health. And now all the statistics and everything are kind of going in that direction. And I'm scared about what's going to happen. That's not to diminish the effects of coronavirus. That's not to diminish anyone that's been affected personally or had a family member. But I fear that the negative halo effect of this coronavirus when it comes to economics, when it comes to mental health, may be bigger than we think. And some of the statistics coming out already are, you know, the disaster distress helpline is up. 891 percent. The Journal American Medical Association just put out an article on April 10th indicating the suicide mortality of coronavirus. It's like a perfect storm. You know, domestic violence is up in Chicago, 14 percent, in Dallas, 20.3 percent, in L.A., 12.4 percent. So during this time of this anxiety coronavirus pandemic, you know, I feel like our mental health may be suffering, and I feel like we need to do things now to help relieve that worry, relieve that anxiety. So from your perspective, what what can we do now, and do you see that this could possibly be have a real negative effect on our mental health? Yes and yes. I think we need to do something now, and if we don't do something now, I think it is going to have a negative effect. You know, we see people kind of fitting this bimodal distribution. You know, there's one population of folks when there's something big that happens where they learn and grow from it. And then there's another population where they, you know, on the extreme end of that get PTSD or, you know, or traumatized by it. My hope is that we can actually help people understand some very basic aspects of how our minds work so that we can shift everybody toward that former where it's like, okay, here's hardship, here's uncertainty. Oh, I'm seeing how my brain is reacting to this. Now I can actually work with my mind now that I know how it works. So that's where I'm hoping we can move. So right now you talk a lot about the bigger, better offer. So, and I think that kind of ties into our anxiety and our worry and whatnot. So kind of, do you want to kind of start with how that brain works and kind of then go from there on ways that we can better equipped ourselves during this time to give us that bigger, better offer so we don't get in the spiral of negativity or the spiral of anxiety or the spiral of social contagion? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So basically we have, you know, our, the oldest parts of our brain are based on survival. They, you know, it's, it's about helping us remember where food is and also remembering where danger is so we can avoid it. There are actually three key elements, uh, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. 
and very simply put, you know, if we see food, that's the trigger, we eat the food, that's the behavior. And then we get this dopamine signal from our stomach that goes to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that's from a brain perspective, our reward. Uh, same is true for danger. You know, you see the danger, you run away, and then you live <laughs> to, to eat some more the next day. Um, so same learning process. This is evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea selects. So a very, very well-described process. Um, so that's our survival brain kicking in right now. But one thing we need to know is that on top of this is layer, literally layered this uh, neocortex, new brain, which is the literal translation. And that helps us survive in a different way based on information. So it takes information from things that happened in the past. It projects that information into the future and says, okay, I'm going to predict what's going to happen. Okay. Now we need accurate information and we also need precedent for that to actually work. Well, we don't have precedent. I mean, 1918, I don't know anybody that's alive from like, <laughs> oh yeah, back in the 1918 pandemic, this is what we did, you know, with our cell phones, right? right? So it's a very different world back then even. So nobody's really has precedent for this. And also we don't have a lot of information about, you know, what's going to happen. Like how long do we need to quarantine? How long do we need to do this and that? But that doesn't stop our neocortex from going ahead and trying to think and plan. But what that turns into with that uncertainty is anxiety because we think of, the, well, what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And we start going through all these what if scenarios, which just turns into anxiety and worry, which ironically makes that thinking and planning part of our brain work less efficiently. It actually starts to go offline. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the first thing to know is like, here's a survival brain on top of its layer, this neocortex, it plans for the future based on previous um, experience and based on accurate information, we don't have previous experience or accurate information right now, or we've got some accurate information, but not as much as our brain wants. I'm going to add one piece to that, which is we can prevent the spread of a virus through social distancing, but there's another thing going on here with regard to the mental health, which is the spread of affect or emotion, which is social contagion. Yeah. So you can, you know, six feet away, put a face mask on, not catch a virus, but somebody can sneeze on your brain from anywhere in the world if we go on social media. Yes. So our brain is saying, hey, go get information. We go on social media to get information. And then we're just walking through this sneeze fest of people panicking or speculating or trying to do the right thing where they're like, see something scary. And they're like, oh, this is danger. I need to tell everybody about this, but it might not be accurate information. And then this mi misinformation, which is much stickier than accurate information, yeah. spreads like wildfire. And then everybody's freaked out. And then our thinking brain's really offline. So that's the first piece. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Now, that's one thing that I wanted to ask you. So... I think everybody intellectually knows this, but maybe don't, don't um, we don't feel it in our heart. We know that we should not be on the news channel six, seven, 10, 12 times a day, but we still mm -hmm. do it. We know that if we eat that cake every single day, it's not going to make us feel good, but we still do it. So how do we counteract that right now, especially with this, like you said, with the social contagion and with everybody having an opinion, but you know, there's only a limited amount of facts. How do we stop ourselves right now from doing that? How do we go on like a news diet when we are so drawn to it? 
Yeah. Well, let's start with the news and then let's talk. We can talk more broadly about how not to get locked into bad habits. You know, what, what did I hear? The quarantine 15 where people are <laughs> worried about gaining, yeah. you know, gaining weight. Um, so with news, if you, if you go on the news, right. Um, and there's not, you know, there's not a big news story, not a big news story, not a big news story. And suddenly there's this big news story that hits. Well, that sounds a lot like you go to the, the casino, you pull the slot machine, you pull the slot machine, you pull the slot machine, and suddenly you win the jackpot. So if, we, if we're going on the news all the time or going on social media all the time to check if there's something up, we're actually setting ourselves up for the, mo the stickiest type of, of reinforcement learning, which is called intermittent reinforcement, just a fa fancy term for random rewards. Mm -hmm. But this is, this is what gets us coming back to play the casino. So basically, the news cycle is kind of like a casino. And if we don't know that, we're inadvertently you know, playing. We're actually paying for it because we pay for these weapons of mass distraction that we keep in our pockets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the first thing to know is just to understand, okay, this is really not helpful for me to go on the news all the time. And then we can do simple measures like, hey, check the news once a day. And don't save that checking the news for right before you go to bed. That's not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so those are ways that we can start to actually work with, say, the, the news addiction uh, that we might be developing. Yeah. And I think there's a – I want to push back just a little bit on that and only because – and I'm speaking outside of my – spirit of influence, but there was a study came out from, um, I think, Rebecca Sachs out of the neuroscience department at MIT, where she correlated when you are isolated and your brain starts to crave food and water. Well, mm -hmm. when you're socially isolated, the exact same portion of the brain starts to crave or crave social connection. And so mm -hmm. I think that's maybe a reason why we go to our phone or go to the TV trying to get that social connection but then we're inundated with all these things. So it's like a weird kind of like we're craving this, but then we get that, which is bad. And so it feels like this difficult loop to get out of. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you bring that up because that is, you know, if we can't identify what we're looking for, we might be looking, you know, what is it looking for love in all the wrong places. So if Tell we're craving connection and we go on social media, how, you know, is that real genuine connection as compared to like, calling somebody on the phone or taking our dog for a walk or giving our spouse a hug, you know? So I think if we can identify, Oh, here, I'm craving that connection. How can I actually satisfy that need without getting myself addicted, you know, and going on some you know, social media to me feels more superficial. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, well, I go on more and more and more because it's not actually scratching that itch and that itch is just getting itchier now. Yeah. And, I'll, I'll add one piece to that, which is uh, on top of that, our brain is saying, hey, I need information. So there's that itch that needs to get scratched where it says, well, you usually get information on social media. So why don't you just go there again? So that, that just adds to all of this. Yeah. And I think you said something there or kind of alluded to it, like I said in the beginning, and is that you are very adverse into mindfulness practices. And in a lot of your study, a lot of your research, you correlate the science and that together. Like I said before, I love the intersection of that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is where mindfulness really comes into play, which is understanding what's going on. But mm -hmm. how do you do that for someone that maybe doesn't have a meditation practice, maybe isn't aware, how do you become aware in the moment? How do you start that first? 
It's a great question. So anybody, and you don't need a practice to become aware, you know, suddenly we wake up to something happening and we're aware. So it's not like we have to go and buy the capacity to be, to be aware at the grocery store. The more we practice it, the more we see, oh, this is what's happening, the more it kind of trains our brain to say, oh, it's a good idea to pay attention. <laughs> and the way I like to start with this is, and this actually stemmed from some of our early research, we did a study with mindfulness training for smoking cessation. We got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And we're like, wow, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. What's going on here? My hypothesis, my probably my preconceived notion was that it was going to be these formal meditation practices that were ruling the day. Certainly those were correlated with outcomes, but more than that were these informal mindfulness practices as people were starting to map out these habit loops around smoking and able to work with those cravings in the moment. So there we started saying, oh, well, what is it that we can help people do right in the moment that they are you know, starting to get caught in a habit loop, for example. Yeah. And it even designed three of these apps to, to study that to see if it actually worked. And so basically, for anybody to become aware, it's the first thing I think of is just mapping out these habit loops. Like, you know, whenever we wake up to the fact that something's happening, we're caught in a, in a habitual behavior, for example, we can just stop for a moment and reflect on it. Like, oh, I'm caught in stress eating or I'm caught in a worry habit loop or I'm about to pick up a cigarette or whatever. We can just pause in that moment and trace it back and say, oh, what triggered it? If we can identify the trigger, great. If not, that's not actually the critical piece. We can also trace it forward as we do it. So let's say eating a piece of cake, we can notice, oh, what am I reaching for? How much cake am I eating? Am I eating it mindlessly or can I actually pay attention as I eat it? That's the critical piece for changing behavior and actually gets to this bigger, better offer that you mentioned earlier, which is how behavior forms is based on how rewarding it is. It's not based on the behavior itself. If it were, we'd just think our way out of a behavior. We'd say, stop smoking. Right. We'd stop, stop eating cake. We'd stop yeah. eating cake. But it's really about how rewarding that is. So if we can really pay attention to that reward value, that's what drives future behavior. And it's also important to know where that gets set up. So, you know, we set habits up as a way to help us be efficient. You know, if you had to relearn everything every day, we'd be exhausted by breakfast, right? Yeah. From walking to eating to whatever. So we set up habits generally to help us survive. And those, the, the reward value gets laid down based on circumstance. So let's say cake, as you brought up. Um, we start laying down the reward value of cake early in life, birthday parties, for example. Right? We associate those with ice cream and friends and presents and all this stuff. And every birthday party we go to, that gets reinforced. So that by the time we're middle-aged, our brain's like, dude, I got this. I know, I know how valuable right, this is. Right. Don't, don't worry about it. And so we were like, why can't I stop eating cake? Well, yeah, <laughs> this is where mindfulness comes in. So we can, if we bring awareness to that moment that we're eating that cake, that helps us update the reward value for right now, like present day as compared to 30 yeah. or 40 years ago. That's critical. And we've actually built a tool. We have this app called Eat Right Now, where we built a tool into that that simply bring, has people pay attention as they're eating. And then also when they're about to eat something, it ha we have them imagine what it was like, or we have them go through the exercise of eating, um, kind of envisioning what, what they're about to eat. Because what that does is it helps bring up how reward, how strong that reward value is right now. 
And what we found is that after 10 times, 10 to 12 times of people using this simple tool, that reward value actually drops. We can model this mathematically, okay. which is pretty remarkable. Yeah. Let me, uh, I want to give you a real, a real life situation with me. And so hopefully mm. I brought you here to help all my listeners, but you're going to fix me right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I have this, I have a meditation practice. I got to be honest in this quarantine, I've gone on and off, but when we just talk about food, just using kind of that example, I know for a matter of fact, when I eat for me, salmon, chicken, vegetables, I feel better. I'm more, mm -hmm. more alert. I'm more active. I, I look better. Um, aesthetically pleasing. However, when I have beer and pizza, it is feels way more rewarding to me than eating, you know, boiled chicken or, or salmon. So how do I replace that reward system? So I like the salmon and vegetables more and not so much the beer and pizza, which in the moment is so gratifying, so much more gratifying right. to me than the good, healthy stuff. How do I switch? Yeah. That? All right. Let's dive in. This is great. This is a great example. So there are two pieces here. So one is. We map out these, and you might not have a, a beer and pizza habit loop per se. You might just be hungry, which is normal, right? We all have physiologic hunger. So let's say it just starts from hunger. And you can look to see as you eat the beer, as you eat the pizza and as you drink the beer, and the beer is an interesting piece because it actually makes it harder for us to pay attention. So the more, you know, one beer, couple of beers, depends on the person's tolerance, et cetera. Yeah. You can still pay attention, but it, at, at a point, it actually makes it harder to pay attention. So that actually um, can diminish the, the availability of our awareness to, to see how rewarding it is. So with eating pizza, we can pay attention as we eat the pizza. And this doesn't mean that eating pizza is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we have this live group that I run once a week for folks using our apps. And somebody was in Brooklyn and she was saying, you know, I love Brooklyn pizza. How do I work with this? And I said, look, it's not about demonizing Brooklyn pizza. Boy, I love Brooklyn pizza. You know, it's fabulous. Yeah, It's about really paying attention to what it's like. And so I said, well, what's it like when you eat one piece? And she's like, it tastes great. I want another. Well, what's it like when you eat a second piece? And she's like, it tastes great. And so I say, well, eat a third piece. And she looks at me like, um, what? Eat a third piece? Yeah. It's critical for us to see what it's like. So for me, pizza in particular, so this is a great example. I, I'm driven. It's like I eat the carbs and then it's like I want another piece. I want another piece. Yes. And it's like it's there's this addictive quality to it where it's just hard to stop when I'm full. Right. So if I, so what I tell people is, okay, go ahead and eat that third piece, but pay attention as you do really pay attention as you eat it and also after you eat it, what's your stomach feel like in all of this. I actually have a friend at Yale. Her name is Dina Small. She's a food researcher. She did this study with, with uh, chocolate in a PET scanner. So she'd feed people chocolate. Long story short, tastes great, tastes great, stops tasting great, starts going down the other side. Like this is terrible. Right. And so what she had people do that she required them to pay attention because they had to rate how good this was. Most of us don't pay attention as we're doing the beer pizza thing, right? We're just like, oh, this is great. Well, how great is it really when we're paying attention? For me, after two pieces, my stomach is, you know, and I can put the pizza down, man. Right. You know, don't get me wrong. I can, I can, I can yeah. haul it in, but it just doesn't feel good after about two pieces and I'm still urged to eat more. So when I really pay attention, and this is something that you can play with, pay attention after that second piece. Notice what your body feels like. Notice what your stomach feels like. Notice if there are urges to eat more. 
see, try to get a really accurate gauge of that reward value. And then, so that's only half the experiment. Okay. okay? The other half is to eat different food. So something that has a nice lower carb for me, it's lower carbs because the carbs are what drive that addictive quality, protein and fat, not so much. So eat, try eating something else. You talked about uh, chicken and vegetables or whatever. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm vegetarian. So, you know, for me, I was just eating some chickpeas and rice uh, for lunch. So it's about paying attention to what that feels like. For me, I feel satisfied. I feel full and I don't feel that urge to eat more. So there is that bigger, better offer. I can compare those two consciously and even unconsciously because my brain's like, well, actually that feels pretty good. When the reward value of the former starts to drop, it opens up the space for that bigger, better offer. And then when we really pay attention to that bigger, better offer and notice not just the immediate effects, but the longer term effects. Like for me, I get sustained energy for hours if I eat healthy food. Whereas you know, the beer and pizza, there's a reason we do it at night because then we got to go to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Knocks you out. Yeah. So just comparing all of this stuff bypasses this willpower mess. And I call it a mess because it fails. Yes. You know, it's the first that goes offline, especially with, uh, with beer. So we can't rely on our willpower, but we can rely on a reward system. And if we do this, you know, we saw this with our eating program 10 times, we can actually start to see how unrewarding the former behavior is, the beer and pizza in, in your case, yeah. and we can start to see how rewarding the others are. Now, it doesn't mean that like boiled, tasteless chicken, and not that you're saying this, right. but it's not, it's not going to magically make broccoli taste like the best thing ever. Yeah. But we can, we can also be creative there. And you know, my wife and I got an air fryer a little while ago. And so we'll air fry some um, vegetables and it, they actually taste pretty darn good. And we feel great afterwards. So yeah. that, that's your mission. Should you choose to accept it? Oh, I'll, I'll accept <laughs> it. To because, play with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one thing that if there is, if there is a uh, afterlife and a um, Supreme being, that's the first thing I'm going to ask them. Why does, seems like all the bad things for you seem to feel in taste so good so but um you know what i'm hearing and i didn't think about that before is because i knew that intuitively that the pizza and beer is not good for me and i am not going to have that satisfaction or that energy in in the benefits of the salmon and vegetables but i didn't put it one step further out which is what will this lead to in an hour what will this lead to tomorrow what would this lead to um, down the road if i continue doing that so that will reprogram my mind to be like, yes, this tastes good in the moment, but the long stem effects may not be as good. And so I can kind of go at it like that. So that's really interesting. And I'll just add one piece there because even in the moment, we can really pay attention to how good is this really, right? Mm -hmm. So pizza might taste good, but if if we add all of those things together right in the moment, right? If I eat three pieces of pizza, it tasted good, but the taste for that third pizza wasn't third piece wasn't as good. Yeah, and my gut bomb certainly doesn't feel good. So on, uh, the composite value of that is actually lower than for me for eating healthy food that actually keeps you know makes me feel good right there. So the, I just want to highlight this piece. It's not just about thinking, and you're not saying this, but just to, in case yeah. anybody misinterprets this. It's not about thinking, oh, this is you know this is healthy food, this is not healthy food. We all know that. It's about feeling because mm. our feeling body totally is so much more is so much stronger than our thinking brain. Yeah. 
So it's about feeling into it in the moment. And like you're pointing out, feeling into it five minutes later, an hour later, and all of that. So we can really lock in that reward value. Switching gears just a tiny bit, but you alluded to it before there with our kind of thinking brain kind of being offline. When we're in that fight or flight, that uh, sympathetic nervous system, our thinking brain and logical brain kind of goes offline. And I think unbeknownst to some of us right now, we may be in that that fight or flight mode. So our logic mm. thinking brain may be kind of turning off. And I read another study for, out of the University of Wisconsin. They actually studied Buddhist monks and monitored their brain waves and to people that don't have a meditation practice. And they realized that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the right super marginal gyrus, which is believed to be correlated with empathy, was more pronounced and would fire more. And if you have more empathy, you kind of switch over into that parasympathetic uh, rest and digest. And so you're able to think and your logic mind kind of goes back online. And the reason why I say that is maybe I'm just the only one, but in this quarantine, you know, with my wife or something, I was a little bit more quick to snap and a little Mm -hmm. bit more quick to be curt. And I think it's because I was in that fight or flight mode. And so I didn't think through that logically. You know, just like, hey, she was just asking me if I wanted water. What do you mean by that? You know, and kind of snap. So um, what are some ways to kind of do a meditation practice or kind of get grounded or kind of release or or that fight or flight response, kind of a little bit of relaxation and allow us to kind of think a little bit more logically and have maybe a little bit more empathy during these trying times? Yeah. So, and you're probably talking about some of the studies that Richie Davidson's lab has done at University of Wisconsin. Uh, So I think some very simple things that we can do are just, I would say, first, notice what it feels like when we're caught up, you know, and my lab's done studies with experienced meditators where we found a a specific brain network called the default mode network that gets activated when we get, when we're regretting the past, worrying about the future or getting caught caught up in craving for something, right? Yeah. And that that manifests experientially because we feel contracted, right? That's why we named our app Unwinding Anxiety because when we're anxious, we get all wound up, right? It feels closed and contracted. When we're closed, it's hard to think. And, and I, I love the Carol Dweck's done a lot of nice work with growth, growth and fixed mindset. I'm yep. sure you're familiar with these. Well, when we're fixed in fixed mindset, we're closed down. We're not open to new ideas. When we're in growth mindset, we're literally feeling open. Oh, I'm open to new ideas. That's where that phrase probably comes from. So the idea I would say first is to recognize, oh, here's here I'm feeling closed, right? It's just so we can calibrate the system. Oh, here I'm feeling open. And we can start to see the cause and effect relationship between certain things. Like, so if I'm worrying about things, does it make me feel closed? Typically, yes. Okay, that's good information to know. When I am feeling compassionate or when I'm feeling connected or when I'm feeling curious or kind or when somebody's kind to me, what does that feel, closed or open? It feels more open. So simple practices we can do are to first recognize, you know, what leads to openness and we can, you know, oh, practice some kindness, practice some compassion, practice some, uh, some curious, you know, be curious. And other things we can literally do to set the stage for that is to simply take a few deep breaths, right? Conscious breaths. Now for some people, especially with this being a respiratory virus, you know, that might be a, <laughs> an, un, uh, a bit of an anxiety provoking zone sure. to pay attention to our breath. So here we can do things like simply paying attention to our feet. 
mm. and just ground our awareness in, a, in our feet for uh, 10 seconds. You know, it's like, oh, what do my feet feel like right now? Let me just wiggle my toes. Oh, what does that feel like to wiggle my toes? And then even bring some curiosity in like, oh, which foot feels warmer than the other foot right now? Hmm. Mm. Is it my right foot or my left foot? And that kind of awakens some of our curiosity. Yeah. It doesn't matter which foot is warmer or if they're the exact same temperature, but that opens, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it opens us up and it literally can ground us so that our thinking brain can come back online and do what it does best. Think. Yeah. Yeah. I've said this before, but <laughs> I had a bout with depression. I got really, really dark there for a minute, but the first I got a, this is why I will always praise um, psychologists, psychiatrists, and therapy because this was a quintessential example of someone that really cared about their job and really understood the individual. Is that the first therapy session I went to? I am. I grew up. You know, you don't go to the doctor. Shut up. You know, willpower. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, you don't ask for help. Type of stuff. And so I was in her office, in my therapist's office, and she could tell that I was super closed off and wasn't willing to discuss anything. And she stopped the session. It was an hour session. She stopped it like five, ten minutes in, and she goes, okay, um, I don't want you to do anything. Do you have any sort of nature near you? And I live in Newport Beach. There's this, like, nature, nature uh, sanctuary called the Back Bay. She goes, go out there and just walk out there. If you can do it with your bare feet and then just look at each foot as you step, and mm -hmm. what I realize now, and kind of what you're saying, or what I believe yeah, you're yeah. saying, is it's grounding you to the present moment. Mm -hmm. And it's virtually impossible to have anxiety or depression when you're in the exact moment, focusing on the breath, focusing on your on your uh, feet, on your hands, which one's warmer, which one's cooler. So it's a really good grounding way to kind of stop that mental negative loop that may, may be happening. So I love that. Yeah, that's great. And why can't you have anxiety when you're paying attention to your feet? Because anxiety, almost by definition, is worrying about the future. And so, you know, if you're just paying attention to your feet, you're not worrying about the future. You're you're kind of breaking that loop. Yeah. And that kind of brings us into the thing that I wanted to talk to. And not only for myself, but once again, I believe, in my opinion, for the entire world, which is every single person on the planet, and it can be debatable, but not with me, is addicted to this one thing, and that is thinking. That is our thoughts. And if you don't figure out how to control those, those thoughts can put you in the worst depths of despair that you've ever seen before in your entire life. However, it can also put you in the most joy possible. So there's a I know that's a big, broad kind of subject to talk about, but one thing yeah. that I wanted to ask you is that, you know, with kind of some of the mental health going in the wrong direction from statistics, when you start to get into that negative loop or those negative thoughts, how do you stop that? Because once again, going back to that pizza and beer, I know that me thinking these negative thoughts and caring about what I look like or caring about all that is does not serve me, but I still mm. go back to those negative thoughts. And maybe it's just me, but I can't figure out how to kind of stop that in its entirety or how to kind of change that because I seem to always kind of go back. I do really, really well, and then I kind of go back. I do really, really well, and then I kind of go back. So yeah. how do we get out of this addictive thought process that I think so many of us suffer from? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So the first is to kind of know how our minds work because then we can start to work with our minds. And if we can think our way out of these types of 
you know, negative thought loops or whether it's a shame spiral or, you know, depression or whatever, we do it. We just say, stop doing that. And we'd stop doing yeah. that. But as you're pointing out, it doesn't work so well. So what can we do? Well, one thing that mindfulness is really good at doing is helping people not necessarily change those things, but change our relationship to those, whether it's a thought or an emotion or even a body sensation. And as we, and one way to change our relationship to them is to see what it's like when we get caught up in a, in a negative thought spiral. Now, just a little bit of background here. It's, it's helpful to know that our brains tend to go to the familiar. There was a study, I think, published in 2014. I think Millman was the first author, uh, if I'm getting that right. Um, but basically, they, they took people who were depressed and then a, a non-depressed control population and you know, said they could choose between you know, sad music and not you know, happy music and sad pictures and happy pictures and, and even a, a self-regulation strategy that would make them more sad or make them less sad. Well, people who were uh, depressed chose the, the sad uh, categories, whether it was pictures or whether it was music yeah. or whatever. And they concluded, I think they used this uh, phrase, we go to what we know, mm. as in it was familiar. Now, from an evolutionary standpoint, this makes a lot of sense. So when we're out on the savanna foraging for food, if we're in an unknown territory, it's really helpful to be on the lookout because we don't know if there's going to be danger there. So this is our brain saying, hey, I don't know if there's danger out there. I, I'm going you know, to be on high alert. High alert does not feel good, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's there to jack up our physiology to be ready to fight or flight. Uh, fight or flee, I guess. Yeah. So here, you know, depression and those negative thought loops or anxiety or whatever can be what we are very familiar with. And then even stepping out of that feels unfamiliar. So just knowing that it can feel weird to step out of one of these habit loops is good, you know, is, is kind of good to prep for and say, oh, I'm in unfamiliar territory. Maybe that's okay. Maybe I'm in, you know, I'm in my growth zone. I'll give you an example of one of my patients who came to me with anxiety. Long story short, he had full-blown panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. He was 180 pounds overweight, all this. And so he started um, using, you know, had him map out his habit loops. Uh, he started using our unwanting anxiety app. Um, actually the first thing he did, he came back two weeks later and he's, um, you know, I said, okay, what did you map out around anxiety? He said, oh, well, I, first I got to tell you, I lost 14 pounds. Whoa. <laughs> and I said, well, I thought we were working on anxiety. He said, yeah, well, I was eating as a way to kind of, uh, you know, uh, avoid the anxiety and I realized it wasn't helping. So I just stopped doing that. So there's a great example of somebody stepping yeah. out of a habit loop simply by recognizing mm -hmm. it. He went on to lose, I think, 97 pounds, but he also was able to work with his anxiety. And there was a point where he said, you know, it's really strange because I've been anxious since I was a kid. Uh, so it was like 30 years. He was about 40 and he had, um, first started noticing that when he was about 10. And he said, it feels really weird to not be anxious you know, because he was so identified with that anxiety. I had somebody else say they felt like anxiety was deeply etched in their bones, right? So that's how identified they were. That was the familiar for them. And he said, you know, so we gave him some practices to specifically look for 
not being anxious as the unfamiliar place until that could become familiar for him. You know, we use the analogy yeah. of, you know, he might've been hanging out with some of his old high school friends, you know, those were, that was the anxiety. And, you know, maybe they got into drugs or smoking or, or whatever. And it's like, yeah, maybe that's not the crowd to hang out with right. anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's time to move mm-hmm. on. And so it took him a little while to say, okay, I'm on my own. I'm not with these friends that are familiar, this anxiety. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it actually feels better. And now his new friend is calm and and connectedness and kindness. And he, you know, he calls himself 2.0. You know, this is my 2.0. Mm-hmm. So it takes a while to, to kind of get step out of this into a growth zone. But after a while, we can become more familiar. And then that growth zone becomes our comfort zone. And then we're in that and then we're, we're in a different place. So that addiction to thinking can be anything from anxiety to uh, rumination around depression to, you know, the world's, you know, uh, I've got the greatest thoughts in the world, like, you know, narcissism um, to all sorts of things, but it's all very similar process in terms of how we can get reinforced through the, the reward, you know, like, Oh, that's a great idea. Or, Oh, I'm a terrible person or, Oh, I'm an anxious person. Yeah. Reinforced the same way. That, uh, that word unfamiliar, could that be a synonym for like non-belief? If we just take one negative thought, I look, I look terrible, I, or I don't like the way I, way I look. If you go, oh, I do, I do look okay, or I do look good, or I am fine with my appearance. My immediate thought, or my immediate thought in the or in the past, has been, well, no, that's not true. Would you say that that feeling of non-belief and unfamiliar would be synonyms? Just knowing that, hey, I'm stepping out of my comfort zone, which was to be self-deprecating. And now I'm being, I'm patting myself on the back in a uh, non-egotistic, narcissistic way. And so it, it feels untrue. Would you say that those two would be kind of a similar feeling? I'd have to sit on that more. It doesn't immediately ring as like 100% synonymous. I think of this more as, and maybe I'm just not understanding exactly what you're, what you're saying, but it sounds like there's a lot of, uh, there can be, well, let me just differentiate. Um, and you can tell me what, what you're talking about. The we can be kind of thinking like, oh, that that thought's not true. And that's where a lot of cognitive therapy is, yes. can be helpful for people, right? So we challenge, we belief challenge, you know, like, oh, is that true? No. Um, so cognitive therapy is about changing thoughts, you know, literally changing cognitions, whereas mindfulness is about changing our relationship to them. So what I'm talking about is really focusing on um, really noticing, kind of mapping out these habit loops and not necessarily changing anything, but simply becoming aware okay. of them and noticing what we're getting from them. But So yeah. maybe you could explain a little bit more. No, I think I, I, I think you said it, said it perfect. So what I was referring to and then um, what I'm thinking is, you know, you have that thought process of, you know, I, I'm not good at this or I'm not doing that. Being aware of it. Okay. How is this making me feel? Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. most of us, myself included, have not gone that, that far down in the depths. Most of us, you know, the CBT that was at the catch it, change, check it, catch it, change it to everything. Yep. And so, but if I feel the feeling, okay, how does this make me feel when I say negative things about myself and then go, oh, okay, that does not make me feel good then you can have that relationship to that, which I think a lot of us just go back to that uh, willpower, which is, oh, no, 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 you are good, you are good, you are good, which doesn't really work. But if you root it in a feeling, then you have a better relationship with it, a better understanding with it, which comes back to that whole mindfulness kind of being aware practice. 
Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And our, because our, our feeling body is so much stronger than our thinking mind. Yeah. Then just one last question on this topic of these negative thought loops. What's one thing, you know, I go home and I'm, on my way home, I go, Oh my God, Dr. Judd thinks I'm a moron. I'm so, I'm so dumb. That podcast went so, so stupid, all these types of things or whatever it is. And you start to get into this negative loop. What's, what's one thing you should try to do immediately is just do that, catch it. And then exactly what we just talked about, or is there another kind of tip or trick or whatever have you? Well, I think it's helpful there. So as soon as we recognize it, uh, one thing that we can do is just simply take a, take a beat by, grounding ourselves on our feet, okay. taking a couple of deep breaths, that helps get our thinking brain back online, Got right? It. And it can also calm our physiology so that when those thoughts come back in, there's a mismatch between the emotional tone and the emotional intensity and the thoughts so that we can start to see them more easily as, oh, that's just a thought as compared to, oh, that's a thought. It's terrible. It's awful. And those emotional ones are what, those are the ones that pull us and push us. So if we can take a beat, ground ourselves, and then that thought comes back in, we're like, oh yeah, what's a big deal? It's a thought. Cool. Well, I know we're running up on time. And like I said, I really do appreciate the time. I know you've um, been talking to everybody and then some, but before I get to just my last two questions, where can everybody find you? I know you have some amazing apps that have been having some amazing um, positive outlooks and, and effects. So where can everybody find you? Uh, two simple places. One is my website, which is drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D. And also I have a YouTube channel where I've been putting out some short videos uh, to, to help with these things. Uh, it's also Dr. Judd. And the website will have information for the apps, uh, my book. Uh, we've got some free healthcare provider courses. And then also some uh, resources for anybody that wants to learn about their brain, some nice animations that, that we had put together. Nice. Yeah. And I absolutely love your book, The Craving Mind. It was really, really good. So last two questions before I let you go. And I know we kind of talked about them, but just to maybe reiterate. So right now during this COVID-19, during this coronavirus time, what's one thing that we should be doing when it comes to our mindset? And what's one thing we should not do or limit doing? Mm -hmm. The one thing I would say that we should be doing is amping up our curiosity. Mm. Uh, I think of it as a superpower. And so the more we can get curious, the more we'll be able to notice whatever's happening, whether it's a habit loop or whether it's getting that, that urge to check the news or to snap at our spouse or whatever. Oh, there's that thing. So we can map out these habit loops. Um, so that's a, the one thing I would say. And I guess the second thing I would say is really just bring awareness into whatever's happening so that we can see you know, how rewarding it is. And I tell my patients to use this simple question. It's like, what do I get from this? Not thinking wise, but feeling into their body. When they're worrying, what do I get from this? When they're snapping at their spouse, what do I get from this? When they're eating the beer and pizza, what do I get from this? And then just the last question, how do you personally, how does Dr. Judd build his self-worth? <laughs> uh, I would say by finding the things that are really, really rewarding for me. And what I've found is that things I wouldn't have not, never thought about, like humility, mm. um, connection, kindness, all of these things feel really good. And they actually build my self-worth because then I'm not dependent upon conditional things to feel good about myself. You know, whether it's, you know, how I look or, you know, what people think of me or this or that, it simply comes back to 
you know, just living in the present moment and being authentic and connected with others, it feels so much better than, than trying, you know, running around trying to do things to have these conditional, um, you know, these conditional rewards that only uh, feed on themselves. Yeah. Well, brother, I really appreciate it. And if nobody tells you today or this week, I want to make sure just from Josh to Dr. Judd, I thank you for everything that you're doing and you're helping a whole group of people, if not America, the world overcome this time. And so I just appreciate your knowledge. I appreciate the time because I can tell from your YouTube channel, from your app, from your other interviews, that your heart is just out to serve and just out to help. Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciate that sincerely. So thank you for coming on the Overcoming You podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you. See you. And remember, everybody, be kind to yourself. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Judson Brewer. He was such a joy to have on. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Give us a rating. And thank you so much to our sponsors, Onnit. That's onnit.com slash O-C-Y. Save up to 10%. And stay tuned for our next podcast coming out. You're going to love our upcoming guests. Remember, be kind to yourself.